We'd like to welcome you back to the Christian Apostolic Center podcast, where a body of born-again believers are committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. Here again with you is your show host, Alex Spooner, and with me, here as always, my good friend and co-host, Matthew Bell. Bro, how are you doing this afternoon? Well, brother, I'm doing mighty fine. I'm excited about tonight. We're going to be talking about the oneness of God, putting the scriptures in proper context. Absolutely. We're going to deal with some really fun verses, some verses that I don't know about other people, but growing up as a oneness Pentecostal, uh, you know, we've had to struggle with, you know, we... We're going to deal with those today. I'm excited. We've talked about this. Also, at the end of the episode, we're going to give some great resources, all the different things we've been able to put together and use for this this pretty lengthy segment of the Why I Believe series, The Oneness of God. But stay tuned and listen in. We're going to jump into it right now. The Oneness of God, proper content. We're excited to be able to welcome all of our listeners and once again watchers that are on Facebook Live right now to the CAC podcast. Man, did I tell you what? This has become, uh, I, we both have full-time jobs, but this has been my favorite job. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to be able to study some great truths of Scripture and then present them to so many different people. Can't tell you how many, how much great feedback we have received uh, obviously, on Facebook, with all the views that we've been getting, the different comments we've had, as well as the audience that we've been having on our podcast. One of these days, I'm going to just read the audience breakdown of episodes downloaded, uh, all the different countries. Really cool. So we've had a lot of fun, and I think there's a lot of anticipation to this episode. We've said that a lot, obviously, so we're going to continue to say it. Dealing with difficult scriptures. I know Sister Hoover is excited because we are going to deal with Genesis one twenty six tonight, Sister Hoover. Hope you and your family are doing well. We miss you guys. Um, we're going to deal with some very fun scriptures. We're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus. We're going to talk about what's going on when the Bible says the Spirit descends like unto a dove. You know, what's going on there? Um, I'm excited, Rev. I'm really, I'm really looking forward to breaking this down and what the Bible says. And as you have said in our introduction, proper context to these scriptures yeah you know when you talk about the oneness of god and you talk about the scripture in general and you're breaking down uh, belief systems and you're breaking down doctrines really what you're doing is putting concrete faith in people that's that's why i believe that that's why i understand it that way and you're just reminding people putting that foundation back in the ground keeping that house strong so it's exciting to see the response of many others that either are so grateful and so thankful that this is this context is coming out, uh, this content is coming out. Um, it, it needs to be talked about, and I'm, I'm honored to be able to do that. Absolutely. There is a particular reason we have saved this episode for last. We mm-hmm. have done our best, starting from the Old Testament, then moving into prophecies that connect with the New Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus in episode number two. I encourage everybody, if you're watching or listening, if you have not been able to catch, whether it's the first episode, second episode, or or, um, either one of them in full, please go back because this is intentional. We wanted to break down the doctrine of the oneness of God that's established from the very beginning of Scripture, the very first verse in your Bible, all throughout the history of his people into the New Testament as he robes himself in flesh and dwells among his people becomes that sacrificial lamb and throughout the new testament we broke down 
an understanding of the oneness of God. And so now as we have that understanding, now we can look into some of these difficult scriptures, um, knowing what the Bible says, knowing um, that, as you said, the dual nature of Christ, we have that understanding now. And now with that revelation, with the understanding of scripture, proper context, what the Bible says, how God has revealed himself uh, through time, now we can look at some of these verses. We're only going to hit... Uh, I think five verses. Now, I, I'm not going to say it's going to be a shorter episode because I think I've done that multiple times, and that has not come to fruition. So we hope it's going to be a shorter episode because we know some of these have been lengthy. But break out your Bibles. Uh, we're definitely make notes, again, going all the way back to um, why we believe in studying Scripture, whatever concept you've picked up, whatever trademark way you have for yourself of studying. Start that out. And as we've done all throughout these oneness episodes, Write down right now how many oneness scriptures you've been able to memorize, commit to memory, uh, or you're able to write down off the top of your head, whether it's on the same piece of paper you started with a couple episodes ago, or whether it's a new one, no big deal, but watch yourself grow, see where you've come in three episodes talking about the oneness of God uh, as that is laid out in scripture. So first, we're going to go, I believe, is it, we going to go to Genesis 126, or are we going to go to Psalms 110? I think we're going to, we'll just start out from the beginning, I suppose, in Genesis 126. Um, may I say this real quick? You know, if you're a Trinitarian that may be watching or if you're um, a oneness Pentecostal, I, I, I really urge you, when we're looking in the Scripture, we want to understand the context of the Scripture. What does the Scripture say? That's the importance of studying. So we can't just look at Scriptures and verses and say, well, this is what it means because that it aligns with my thinking. We have to look and say, well, what what does the Scripture say? Scripture interprets Scripture. So if we have questions, all Scripture is going to harmonize together. It has to begin to connect one with another. To me, when there are certain Scriptures in the Bible that you, it's kind of like a puzzle piece. It's one piece of the puzzle that has to be put together for the rest of it. And so sometimes... All you need is a couple more pieces. And so many people, they have great understanding, they love the Lord, and they have maybe one or two pieces of a puzzle, but they're just missing a few more pieces to get the full picture. And so what we're wanting to do today, you know, the, like you said, brother, when we talked about the Old Testament, where we laid out a piece of the puzzle. We talked about the New Testament, the dual nature. We laid out the piece of the puzzle. And now we want to give a picture of certain scriptures that can be misunderstood if you don't have the pieces of the puzzle. And so um, getting the context right here, uh, there are some scriptures we don't have the full, complete answer. There's no perfect answer to it. Um, But we also don't want to have assumption with those scriptures. So we're going to, I think in Genesis 126, there's multiple, there might be multiple implications, multiple answers. And we're going to give a couple ideas, and then you can kind of do the research and study it for yourself and get an idea of it. So, Absolutely. Brother Alex, you take it away, man. Well, do I have the honors of doing I'm pretty sure Sister Hoover expressed to you that she wants us to hit Genesis. But no, I'm kidding. We're, we're definitely. Let, I'll read it, and then I'll let you break it down. Right, go ahead. I'm turning there right now. If you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn. If you can, you're watching, obviously. You can see this big old Bible I got here. Go ahead and read whenever if you. You have it memorized, don't you? You don't need to turn to your Bible. Yeah, I I'm, wish I'm I had every, every scripture memorized. 
<laughs> uh, so Genesis one twenty six, and it said, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So I think it's important, obviously, everyone that's watching and listening, the first thing they, they again, they probably already know this, is that plurality that they see there when it says, uh, God said, let us make man in our own image, in our image, excuse me, after our likeness. Um, and then that stops the plurality. Now it's important, before we go any further, you mentioned this a couple episodes ago, we have to fight with these verses because in our day, we are facing a battle that obviously the Old Testament Jewish people didn't have to face, nor did the New Testament writers. That is this conception and development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you said before, we have to deal with this because there is a doctrine called the Trinity out there that these writers didn't have to deal with. But I do believe we need to deal with it. But it is important to note that the people that God inspired to write these verses, they too had no conception of the Trinity at that time. Absolutely. And I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to quote uh, some Trinitarian people because it doesn't do too much good if you're ever talking to somebody that may not be of the same persuasion uh, as you to quote your pastor because, well, you know, they could just say, well, you believe that just because your pastor believes it and you guys believe the same thing. And there's some validity to that. It's a term called enemy attestation. You are using um, a quote from a different viewpoint to prove your own. So it's important. Before we break into what this could be talking about, I want to quote some Trinitarians. I have some quotes, and again, we're going to make this available to you um, and tell you where we found these. Genesis 126. This is by Michael Heiser. He has a a website. Uh, He is a well-known Trinitarian. He says this, Genesis 126, where it says, Let us make humankind in our image, popularly thought of as a discussion within the Trinity, is better to be understood as God addressing an angelic host. Now, that's what he says. Again, we'll get into some different ideas. Michael Brown, he is a Jewish Trinitarian um, who writes a lot of books, obviously on the end times and stuff like that. His quote was, This cannot be referring to personhood in the Godhead in distinctions. That's Michael Brown. Uh, Another person, Jeremy Myers, he has a website called Redeeming God. If you look up um, Genesis 126 on the Redeeming God website, you can hear Jeremy Myers say this. We saw that it cannot refer to anything related to the Trinity or the popular idea that humans have uh, intellect, emotions, and it is concerning the separation, or excuse me, the distinction of persons. One more quote for you from the Cambridge Bible for Schools of Colleges, 1914 edition. Nor can it be shown to be probable that the doctrine of plurality of persons should have been taught early in the history of Revelation. So I quote all that to say this, is that there are very popular, um, what we would call defenders of the doctrine of the Trinity that don't even look for the distinction of persons in this verse. So we shouldn't be looking for it either. Now, what we have to do is deal with what could be going on. 
you alluded to that there may not be we're not going to claim to have the perfect answer or explanation for what's going on here there are multiple avenues we're not going to bring up all of them with just a little bit of research on your own you can find that there are several different opinions we're going to bring up one in particular that michael heiser brought up talking about angels this idea that it's an angelic host that god is speaking to now Again, it's important to look to the next verse because God says, So God created man in his own image. The image of God created he, him. Think of all the singular pronouns there. That's important to look at as well. But you have this idea, this option, that God is speaking to angels. Well, how do we know that? Where do we get that idea? Because, again, I know we've spoken about this. There are several different beliefs and opinions on this. I think the Bible lays out some proofs for why it could be angels. Here's here's one of them. If you turn to Ezekiel chapter one, uh, and I believe it starts, uh, I, you know, I want to say verse maybe four or five. Um, you have this vision that Ezekiel is having. The Bible says it's a vision of the Lord. He sees the Lord, and he sees this. The Bible calls the host of heaven, referring to the angels. And you begin to look, and he describes what he's seeing. Now, I will say there's several descriptions here. Um, that me and you don't have. They talk about four faces, different things like that. But the words I want to point out to, if you're able to turn there in Ezekiel chapter 1, and you begin reading down, the Bible says that they had the likeness of a man. That they had the likeness in the hands of a man. The Bible says a few verses later, I believe it's in 22, um, verse 22. I'm not turned there. I'm still at Genesis 126. But it says that their faces had the likeness of a man. And so we have this these angels, this angelic host that's around the Lord in this vision. Now we know that the angels were created before human beings. Angels weren't created after they were they were or excuse, after they were created before. We know that when the heavens were created. And so you have the angels created before man, an angelic host before man. In this Bible, excuse me, in Ezekiel chapter one, it also says that these angels or this angelic host, these beings that Ezekiel was seeing in this vision around God, the Bible says where the spirit went, they went. And wherever the spirit of the Lord went, those angels went, meaning anywhere that he went, they were there. And they were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the Bible says they cease not to say that night and day. So you have this picture of angels with the Lord at all times, angels being created before human beings. And these angels, the Bible declares, has the likeness of a man, the face of a man, the hands of a man. You can start to see where it's reasonable to think that there is a possibility that angels were there at creation when God says, let us make man in our image. Now, the Bible also says that angels are made a little, uh, the the people, we are a little lower than the angels. The Bible says that. So it it compares, obviously, um, there's a comparison there. There's also the idea that angels have free will and me and you have free will, but that's a different argument. The last portion of scripture I want to go to, because I I don't want to spend too long here. We know that this is going to be a lengthy explanation. We'll try to go as quick as we can. The last explanation is if you go over to 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19 through 22, you have this picture of another vision of the Lord, and you have these, the Bible calls them the hosts of heaven, and they're referring to angels. You can do your research on that. It's it's widely popular. Um, the position is held that that is angels, that is the hosts of heaven surrounding them. The Bible says it's on the right hand, the left hand of God, and they were speaking to a matter. So you have 
these angels speaking to God, and you actually have God, me and you were talking about this, um, ask the angels a question. Now, we don't believe that God uh, didn't have knowledge of anything to where he needed to ask the question, but we believe that God includes his creation in what he's doing. Um, and then you also have Job. Um, you have Satan, obviously, in the book of Job coming with the sons of God coming before the Lord. So you see these angelic beings being around the Lord um, in different areas. So it is an option. It's a more widely popular option to believe that these were referring to angels. Now, another view that I think you'll hit on real quick is the idea of counseling after his own will in kingly language. That is another option that is very widely held as well. Right. So when you look at the word words itself, a lot of times uh, the Hebrews, they would use words that were more plural form and that was to describe the majestic majesty of a king right. the greatness of that king right now i believe in ephesians one eleven, in regards to the counsel of his own will uh, some people refer to this and tie it in with when he says um, our image he's referring to the majestic uh, majesty it's a plural form to describe his greatness um and in Ephesians 1.11, this is what it says, And in whom also we have obtained the inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, we do not interpret that, interpret that, that God was speaking to one person in the Godhead and the other person in the Godhead agreed and that other person agreed and then right. they came and said, well, we're just going to make them. Uh, because it ties in, of course, in verse 27 where it says God did. So it mm -hmm. transfers from a plural form to a singular form in action. And But I really enjoy the answer um, in regards to speaking to the angels because a lot of times God does not counsel. And we should understand this. God does not have others counsel him but he does include like you said I, I love how you said that he does include creation before he acts that's why you look at the prophets why are there prophets he's telling his creation before anything ever takes place what he's going to do and a lot of times it's because of the reaction of his creation uh, so a lot of times when he declares his creation does something in return. And I believe when the angels, when he's speaking in Kings, also did the same exact thing. Right. And said, I will go and I will be the messenger. Yeah. Well, you also have, you have, I think of this picture with Abraham. He says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. And Abraham says, wait a second. What if I find, and he starts going down this number. And God says, okay, I won't destroy it for this. And Abraham's, okay, well, what about this? You know, what about this? And he gets all the way down to 10 people. Yeah. I want a great, and that's a whole different topic. But another picture where God declares something, but Abraham um, petitions the Lord, and the Lord includes um, Abraham, the desires of Abraham's heart into his plan. It's also important to note that the popular Jewish thought, the Jewish reader who obviously, the Old Testament being written in Hebrew and the Jewish people, they have a popular, have... Um, have widely accepted the idea that angels um, were what that's referring to. The important thing is to know that this could not be referring to a plurality of persons in the Godhead. Absolutely. And there are, again, we will give you those resources. I quoted them. There are several Trinitarian people that would admit that as well. You can't find the Trinity there. Now, you know, it's, it's okay. Um, you don't have to be bashing somebody over the head if you're having this conversation. It's okay to say, you know, it, it might not be here. 
but you know maybe it's somewhere else and then encourage them go to another difficult scripture because that's what we're going to do right we're going to jump to another difficult scripture you know it's not in genesis 126 we can see that um but let's go somewhere else and the next spot we're going to go to is Psalms 110. This one may not be as popular. People probably are like, oh, what's one, what's in Psalms 110? I didn't know um, that was kind of controversial. We'll jump into that. What does Psalms 110 say, Rev? Well, I don't have it pulled up there. on my Bible he, like you do. I'm there. in another spot, That's man. Okay. We, am I in the right am I in the I think, spot? No, I believe you're in the right spot. Psalms sure? 110, verse 1. You would think that we would get together before we start recording and uh, try to work this all out. But we, no, I'm kidding. We actually did. Um, I am in the right spot, correct? Yes, okay. you are, all sir. Right. Psalms 110, I'll read it. I'll go ahead. <laughs> I put you on the spot. I, you, I asked you not to do that to me, and here I am doing it to you. The no, Bible I just says, didn't have the scripture pulled up. <laughs> it, says, it says, the Lord, this is a psalm of David talking about the Lord's ruling power. If you have subtitles over top of your psalms, you can probably see that. The Bible says in Psalms 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. Now, this is where language is important because if you look at that and you just see the Lord said unto my Lord, you're thinking, okay, we have a God saying unto a God, there's two. And as pastor has popularly said, if there's two, then there can be seven. So we do have to deal with this idea of a Lord saying unto my Lord. Now, depending on what version you have, I know for sure in the KJV, it might even be in the New King James Version. I know you're a little bit more familiar with that uh, translation. But if you look at your Bible, if you're turned with us to Psalms 110, you'll see that the Bible says the Lord. Now, that word Lord is in all capital letters, referring to Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, the all-powerful supreme God that Israel worshipped and followed. The Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah, said unto my Lord. Now, if you look at that next word, Lord, again, where language is important, you'll find that that is a capital L uh, because it's a proper noun. But it's not all capitalized. And if you look, if you, I encourage everybody to get the Blue Letter Bible app. It's free. You can click on any word in, in the Bible, and you can get the Greek or Hebrew root, uh, root word or meaning of that. And that's really important. Language does matter. Uh, and that word is not Jehovah because it's you could look at this and say all-powerful God is saying to all-powerful God. That's not what it's saying. That word Lord is referring to master or at, are you popular? You know, sometimes it's used as Adonai. It says the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So it's important to know that the first Lord in this verse is significantly more supreme and powerful than the second Lord that is referred to in this verse. Right. Why is that important? Because this can't be a trinity because we know that the the traditional view of the doctrine of the trinity is co-equal, co-eternal, uh, co-equal in power, might, and ability. Well, yep. here you have a more powerful Lord saying unto uh, a less powerful Lord that would break up the co-equal. So we know that this can't be talking about a co-equal trinity or polarity of persons because the the co-equal part of that is is kind of it's in trouble there. So what is happening though? If you look up in the New Testament, this is the most I believe it's the most popular quoted psalm. Psalms one nineteen or one eighteen might be right there close behind it, but this is the most popular. Uh, quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted by Peter in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 2, I believe it's verse 34 even, um, where Peter quotes this. Verse 2 says, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule 
thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy mouth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we know, and to quote another popular Trinitarian person, John MacArthur, very popular. Grace to you, church and ministry. Um, his commentary, he has a study Bible. I purchased it. You can get the app for uh, a couple dollars, I believe it is. And here he declares that this is a psalm and it's prophetic and it's it's also poetry. I mean, I'm sure you'll get to that a little bit speaking to someone we know from a oneness perspective. Uh, but this is the Lord sent unto my Lord. And who is David's Lord? Obviously, you have Jehovah, his God, that's his Lord. But that lower, that word Lord, his king, his ruler, that's speaking to the man, Jesus Christ, who came in a body of flesh. We know he is the lion and the lamb. He was our prophet, priest, and he was our king. And that's why I won't give the exact scripture reference, but when you have this discourse between Jesus and the Pharisees, and they said, here, answer a question, Jesus. We're going to try and trip you up. And Jesus said, okay, before I answer your question, you got to answer my question. How is it possible, and he quotes Psalm 110, that David said, uh, My Lord said unto my Lord, who is David's king and who is David's Lord? And the Pharisees couldn't answer that question. And Jesus said, Well, you're not going to answer that question. I'm not going to answer your question. Because Jesus is saying, I am him. I am David's not only Lord, but I am also his king, his earthly king, because I am after the lineage of David, and he fulfilled that role of prophet, priest, and king. So it's safe to say that we don't have a trinity here, but we have a picture of Jesus, and again, as the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. No, that's a beautiful point. I love that. You know, I think once we, you know, those are kind of the main scriptures of the Old Testament a lot of times yeah. that can uh, be misinterpreted um, in the context, not really proper and I, I love the explanations you gave now when we enter into the new testament that's that's really the meat and potatoes of Uh-oh. of oneness of god and there's a lot of scriptures that can be easily um, misinterpreted if the context is not proper yeah and or you don't have a solid foundation as we've already laid out in prior episodes of how god has revealed himself both in the Old Testament as one God, there's none beside him, there's none like him, and both in the New Testament as there's one God and he is a spirit and Jesus Christ is the expressed image. And we've already talked about that. So now we kind of want to move into the New Testament understanding of these scriptures that may be uh, not necessarily confusing but easily misinterpreted if your foundation is not that strong. Um, I would like to start out with Matthew three, seventeen. Yes, very popular portion of Scripture. Um, the thing about Matthew three seventeen is that it's it's obviously the point that a lot of people bring out is that there's a distinction, and the distinction is is that as one as Pentecostals, we believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And so the question is, how can Jesus Christ be fully God, but at the same time, God be speaking from heaven? The great mystery. The great mystery. We've talked about that. While Jesus is on the earth being baptized. And so in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, this is what it reads. And allowed a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so 
what we got here is a beautiful description of a ceremony that was taking place. Yes, that it we was. discussed that before. Yes. Is that at I believe he was at the age of thirty at this at period. At the age of, of thirty, time. yep, he was. And at the age of thirty is when you could enter into the priestly, priestly ministry. ministry. Yes, the legal age was age thirty. How ironic that Jesus started his ministry, uh, his open ministry, at age thirty. Right. And so what this was is really more so of a ceremony. Now, how do we explain God talking in the heavens while Jesus is still on the earth? And what it really does is magnify. This is this is from the oneness Pentecostal view. What this really is doing is magnifying the humanity of Christ. That's right. That he was fully God and fully man. So and also God, like we said, God is spirit. He is not confound to a particular location. He yes. is omnipresent. omnipresent. He can be anywhere at once. That's why David said, if I rise up with wings and I go into the heavens, you, you, you know that you are there. there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. In other words, wherever I go, where can I hide that you cannot find me? You are there. And so God is everywhere. He does not have a specific location even the body of Jesus, and I want to be careful when I say, even the body of Jesus, the fleshly the body, flesh. the flesh in itself could not obtain all of God because God has no size. You know, I used to say, Brother Alex, I used to say God's big. Well, that's wrong because God's, <laughs> God's so far beyond that. Yeah. He's so far beyond the concept of limitation. And so he's, he, he, he can be in the heavens, but at the same time dwell fully in Jesus Christ. That's right. And so when he's speaking to the heaven, what he's doing is authenticating Christ's ministry. Because right after this period of time, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And that's when his ministry really began to that's right. began and flourished. Absolutely. And this is a perfect picture. Um, there's so many different implications here. First of all, if Jesus got baptized... We all need to get baptized. That's important. Now, get this. Jesus was not baptized due to sin because right. we know he is without sin. So it's not because of faults or wrongs that he did. That's not why. He didn't need sins washed away. And so that magnifies your point. So what was he doing? Again, as we said in Psalms 110, moving on to here, uh, he was the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's a fun study. But he was a prophet. Well, a prophet was not God. It was the voice of God. Obviously, we know that Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus, was the voice of God, God speaking through him. He was God, but he spoke the word of God. He says, I can only speak what my father tells me. He fulfills that role of prophet. He fulfills the role of priest. Again, after the order of Melchizedek, he's uh, from the lineage of David. And all priests, they had to be baptized. Uh, and again, they couldn't start until they at the age of 30, when it is exactly when Jesus was baptized. This is a declaration of the anointing that is upon Jesus and as he starts his ministry, as he starts this this road of being the suffering servant. It's a declaration to everyone that this is my son. This is the one that has been prophesied about. This is John the Baptist was the one who is going to make prepare the way of the Lord, and this is him. John recognized that. And I think it's important to note, to go back one verse, he says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straight out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God as saying, like a dove. Now, it's important to note that you know, we see that um, 
we see that and sometimes like, oh man, there's three things here. You have Jesus, you have a dove, and then, but I don't know of any Trinitarian that will will admit that this Holy Spirit is a dove. Right. Um, you know, they're just that's not you know that that's not something they're going to take. So that you can't look for the Trinity as far as persons in a dove because again, no, I don't believe um, that they're going to claim that a, a dove is one of the. the distinct persons in the Godhead. And as you said, Jesus Christ was not 50-50. He was fully God and fully man. And that is the great is the mystery of godliness um, that we talked about in the New Testament. And you have this incredible declaration, not only Jesus fulfilling the role. He, he had to get baptized. This is important. He had to because he was a man. And the law that he set up, he was going to fulfill. He came to fulfill the law. And he didn't come to cheat. He didn't come to cut corners because just because he was the rule maker, he subjected himself, as you said, to a body of flesh and subjected himself to all the rules that he emplaced back in the Old Testament, a priest needing to be baptized and at the age of 30. What an incredible picture. He fulfilled completely and fully, even to the letter of the law, the role of prophet, priest, and king. And what an incredible picture that is. I love how you brought out the uh, the spirit God speaking from heaven and then Jesus Christ because it it goes into what we're going to be talking about is New Testament uh, language. Yes. And there are three main things that we want to cover in this New Testament and that is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost language. It is very easy to look at this Especially because, and I'm obviously we're not trying to attack anybody, no. but because a lot of our society has heard of a trinity, yeah. the pre-assumption is that when you read Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you're thinking of a trinity. Yeah. And so now we're going, as one is Pentecostalism, we believe that there is no trinity, but rather that Jesus Christ is the one indivisible God, undividable God and that that spirit indwelt him. So now we're we're having to come and present to people what Father, Son, and Holy Ghost really means and yeah. the interpretation of that. Yes. Now, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost in the Trinity, in the Trinity teaching is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, are three distinct, distinct. persons in one Godhead. So they believe there's one God, but... There, there's three persons within that God yep. that are co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. That's what they're, uh, they believe it is. And so from our oneness standpoint, we believe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is not three persons, but rather roles in which God has dealt with humanity that represents how he, um, how he I don't want to play as, say, the word, uh, plays a role, but how he represents, fulfills. fulfills a role, represents a role. And so the Father refers, this is what we mean by role, the Father refers to God's role as our creator, that he created all things. Yep. He's the Father of all things. And it refers to the fact that Mary conceived a child by God. Right. He begot Jesus Christ. This is why the scripture refers to Jesus as the begotten son in John 3.16. Yes. He's begotten. He had a beginning. He had a start date. Yes. And that start date was when God uh, came to Mary and Mary, by the Spirit, 
conceived a son. Yeah, and that's important. Just I, just to throw this in there before you move on to the son. <clears throat> yeah. He is not eternally begotten. The Bible never Absolutely. calls him eternally begotten. Um, he was begotten. He had a starting point. It wasn't an eternal starting point because the word eternally begotten is really uh, it, it, it's not, it, it's self-contradictory. You can't have uh, forever, but then a starting point within it just doesn't work. He's not eternally begotten. He is the only begotten. That's Absolutely. what the Bible says. Wonderful point. And so uh, going into the, uh, the title I would like to use, mm-hmm. uh, the role or the title, Son, refers to Jesus Christ, the man, born of a woman, begotten of the Father, Notice the scripture, and like you said, the scripture never says that he is, uh, the scripture describes the son as the son of man or the son of God, but it never describes him as the eternal son. Never. You won't find that word. Absolutely. You'll never find it. And it never describes him as God the son. That word is also never in your Bible. You will only find it. the father. That he is the son of man, yes. according to the flesh, yeah. but the son of God, according to the spirit of holiness. And, of course, we talked about that in yes. Romans chapter 1. Um, and so the purpose, when we refer to the son, the role of the son was for the work of redemption, the work through Calvary. There, He was made to be a sacrifice to pay the sins of men. So God brought forth his own substitution. Uh, to sin, and that was the Son, Jesus Christ. This is why the Scripture says that He was a Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Right. He was, He would, He was destined from the design of God to be the redemption, the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Yes. So the work, the role of the Son, is redemption. Yes. The role of the Father is creation. Yes. And now let's talk about the Holy Ghost. Yes. The Holy Ghost describes this. Holy, which is a word that describes God's moral character, perfection, purity, and beyond that. It is a level of deity that only God has, a level of purity that only deity obtains. And then spirit describes God's substance because the scripture says in John chapter 4, I think it's 24, that God is spirit. And then that Corinthians says that God is the spirit. Yeah. And so when it refers to the Holy Spirit, it is referring to the holy God. But many times in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit is at work, it refers to God's spirit at work within or to man. Yes. Well, I think it's an important also to note, um, as we have said, God the Son is not in your Bible. God the Holy Spirit or God the Holy Ghost is also right. never found Absolutely. in your Bible. Absolutely. And so the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit, is God's regenerative work within man. Yeah. That is a role that he has taken on. And so the Father refers to the role of God's creation and that we are the sons of God by the Spirit. The Son refers to the redemption. I hope everybody's writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> and then Holy, the Holy Ghost refers to God's 
uh, regenerative work within the hearts of men. And so that's kind of the, our explanation as one men, oneness Pentecostalism of what it means. And here's, here's a good example. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost does not refer to three distinct persons, but rather describes each role as he as he has taken with mankind. This is this is one of the greatest examples. We were made in the image of God. Yes. I can be I am right now, I'm a father of two kids. Yes, sir. I am a husband, and I'm also a son. But you don't see on the left of me my father role, and you don't see on the right of me my son role, and then you than me myself. Well, I also point out this: you're also a brother. Uh, you're you're also I, I a cousin. So are you? You know, are there how many? How many are in the Godhead? Absolutely. So you can have roles of relationship and still be one st- distinct person, yeah. one individual. Now, I don't ever refer to God as a person because God is spirit, and the essence of Him is spirit. Um, but so when you see Jesus, you see all those things. You see the Father, the Holy Ghost. You see everything but jesus is all encompassing that's why in matthew 28 19 it says baptize in the name singular of the father son and the holy ghost yes because jesus said i've come in my father's name uh, in Matt, john chapter 14 or john chapter 5 refers to i come in my father's name and he has given him a name in matthew chapter 3 which is or i'm sorry chapter 2 uh, which is the name of Jesus, and then referring to the Spirit, and I'm going off the top of my head, but it's in Acts chapter 14, when it refers to, and when the Holy Spirit has come, I will not leave you comfortless, but I will come unto you. So he's referring to himself. to himself. But then later on in the epistles, it says, it's Christ in you, that's the hope, of, hope glory. of glory. So that same Spirit that Christ sent is Christ in Spirit form to you in that different role. And that's why in the fulfillment of Matthew 28, 19, it's Jesus Christ because it refers to the one individual, not to the titles or the roles. Right. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into the couple of verses we're going to break down yes. concerning the New Testament. I'm looking at the time. We got about, we're at about 40 minutes right now. Um, so let's jump into this. I think there's a couple of verses I'm going to bring. I'm going to start this out, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, let you rock and roll. If you have your Bibles or your phone, we're going to go to John chapter 17 now. Um, I'm going to start in verse 1. Verse 5 um, is going to be the main verse that we deal with. Um, but I'm going to start. I want to make sure we have a proper context right. to what we're doing. It looks like we're having to fiddle around with There we go. We there got we it. go. There's a sweet spot, and you really got to work hard <laughs> with it. There's a sweet spot. Technology, man. We're going to start with John chapter 17. Now, if you have, again, some subtitles in your Bible, it talks, this is Jesus' prayer. The Bible says in John 17, These words spake Jesus, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Now, this is important to note. This is a prayer here. Jesus is praying. Now, as J. Vernon McGee says, a very popular, well-known on the radio, WSNL 600, actually the same station that our church is able to be on um, uh, one day a week. I believe it's on Saturday. Uh, And I believe, I don't know, what's 1230. I'm not sure what time it is on Saturday. Anyway, J. Vernon McGee, very popular, known Trinitarian. He made the statement that when you have a God praying to a God, he ungods himself. What does that mean? What J. Vernon McGee says, again, who holds to the doctrine of the Trinity, he says, whenever you have Jesus praying, he is praying. That's the man, Christ Jesus, praying into that. We would say, amen, absolutely. And so 
we have to start out here. Whatever verses come after this, we've already established. If you have one God praying to another God, what is prayer? A prayer is a petition to a higher power to intervene in something that you can't get done. Right. And so you have Jesus praying here. Clearly, we know that that's not two persons communicating um, because then you have subordinationalism and obviously that's not the traditional view of the doctrine of the trinity so it's important to note the context jesus is praying here and as we know a man as a man he had to pray i believe and also i believe it's in psalm 17 that uh, all flesh comes unto the lord in prayer so as a man he did pray but i'm gonna break this down i'm gonna read the verses and turn you loose rev it says these words spake jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Verse 2, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou hast given unto me. In verse 5, where you're going to break apart now. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So that word before the world was, people get tripped up on because they we want to think of an eternal son. So was there an eternal son um, with the Father before the world was? And he wants to return to that um, that place. Obviously, we know it's from a Trinitarian point, point of view uh, that just doesn't compute with the co-equal co-eternal understanding of the trinity so what is happening here well number one i would say going back to i believe it was verse four that you just read that there is only or verse three verse three yep in there is life there is one only one true god there is only one true god and obviously jesus christ at the time when he was praying he was not referring to himself he was speaking to the father the flesh was speaking to the spirit, as you said. The flesh prays. The man, Jesus Christ, which was fully man, was praying to the Father. Now, this scripture was probably one of the most difficult scriptures for me to understand for mm. a very long time. And it's okay to admit that, by the way. Absolutely. There is. All those that are listening and watching, it's okay to admit that. I didn't. <clears throat> I tried hard not to cut you off. I know we had. I had no, some. Uh, good. I had some. <laughs> Very high quality feedback from well, was Brother Jacob Swears? You know, he, his name is always on this podcast. Let's go ahead and drop it right now. He 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 definitely. I thank him for his his input because I don't want to do that. So go ahead, Rev. I'm gonna make sure I don't do that. No, I appreciate you bringing up that point because it's okay to struggle with certain scriptures, and in time, God reveals it to you as you learn more. And like a like I said from the beginning, maybe you just need one more piece of the puzzle in order for all the, for the picture to come together. Yeah. And so, and now, let's read it one more time. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thy own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so the, the, the assumption, as we read this, as anybody would, as we read this, we would say, see, Jesus was with the Father before creation ever was. Hmm. And to a degree... There is a sense of truth to that, but not to the degree that, that Jesus truth. Christ, the flesh, the man, was with God. Mm-hmm. And it's not referring to a second person in the Godhead either when I say to a degree. So let's define that. Yeah. Let's cover just really quick that Jesus was begotten. John 
3.16. Yes. Jesus was begotten. Starting point. He had a beginning. You cannot argue that. You cannot deny that. And even in Galatians 4.4, it says, In the acceptable time. In other words, there was a particular time in which God destined Jesus to come forth. Yes. And that time, when the fulfillment of that time has come, Jesus was born of a woman. And that's in Galatians 4.4. And so God did not have a son until Mary conceived a baby. So Jesus came into fruition. He was begotten at the conception of, of when Mary conceived him, with the conception of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus had a beginning. Yes. And that's what the scripture teaches, that Jesus had a beginning, 100%. Uh, let's take a look and look at a couple of scriptures because this is really what we're asking. Was Jesus before the foundation of the world? Was Jesus eternal? Mm. So let's it, we can cover a multitude of scriptures in this one conversation as we talk about John seventeen five, Revelations thirteen eight, and says, "All that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names are not written in the book of the of life of the Lamb." Here's this, slain from the foundation of the world. Now, we would bring up John 17, 5 and say, well, see, Jesus was from before the world began. Well, in Revelations 13, it says that he was slain from the foundation of the world. So can we ask ourselves, was Jesus Christ literally slain? from the foundation of the world, we would say that's absurdity. He was only crucified once. Absolutely. And that was far after the beginning of the world began. (laughs) And that was in that period of time after he was begotten. And so we have to understand what the writer's referring to. Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the glory I once had with you. Even in Colossians, it says in one seventeen, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist... This language that we can read in Colossians 1.17 can be found. And the answer is all found in John 1.1. That's right. John 1.1 really answers uh, all of these questions and describes what every apostle that were all in total agreement, as Peter said, everything Paul wrote, he was right. might be hard to understand, but he was right about that. That's absolutely. And, and, you know, we say, and, and... and Peter was the one given the keys of heaven, and he was the one that preached to the Jews and the Gentiles first and to the Samaritans to where all, every person entered into the kingdom first by him, which was an interesting thought. And so these people, they all agreed. And so when John's writing, this is what he says in John 1, one. He said, in the beginning, so before the world began, this is, we're going back to the start. In the beginning was the word. Yes. And the word was with God. And the word was was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was. And so let's break this down just for a moment. We're, he's, notice that he did not say that in the beginning, Jesus and the Jesus was with God and the Jesus was God. He didn't say that. He Mm-mm. said the word and there was a distinct purpose for that 
the word that he's using there is where we get this Greek word of logos or logos. And logos refers to the thought and the plan of God. And it's not a thought. It's not a plan. That's right. It's it is the, the plan. That's right. So when John's talking about this, he says, in the beginning, God's plan was with God, and God's plan was God, and God's plan um, and God's plan was God and is God and was with God. So in the beginning was the plan. The plan was with God and the plan was God. All things, get this, the same was the beginning with God. All things were made by the plan. And without the plan was not anything made that was made. Yes. So all creation circled around the plan. And the plan was Jesus Christ, and That's we get right. that in John one fourteen, yes. when it says, "In the big and and the Word, the plan, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us." Yeah. That's why when we went back and it says the acceptable time he came in and he was born of a woman, what it's referring to when the plan finally was taking place, when it was finally time to put Jesus Christ into action and the plan was to be manifested. And so the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the plan from the beginning that was God and was with God was Jesus Christ, the begotten of the Father. Oh, incredible. So, so the, the answer, real quick, what was from the beginning? It's not that Jesus, the flesh, the man, the begotten Son, was with God from the beginning, but the plan of Jesus Christ was with God from the foundation of the world because God knew every one of us would fail and everyone was, every one of us would fall. And so what he did before we ever did was make a plan for our redemption. This is the glory of the oneness testament is that when we know who Jesus is, we understand his redemptive power That's and his right. redemptive plan that before you sinned and fell, into that ungodly lifestyle, God said, I already have a plan to get you out of it. And I'll, I'll not only that, but I'm going to take the pain. I'm going to take the agony. I'm going right. to take the punishment that you deserve. And I'm going to send my Savior. And that Savior was my plan from the start. And that's when Jesus, he's on earth and he says, what's easier to say? Take up your bed and walk, or thy sins be forgiven thee. And he says, who hath power to for sins get, for, for, forgive sins? God only has power to forgive Absolutely. sins. He could say that because he was that God who came down, that plan, the Logos, the Word that was made flesh, dwelling among his people. Oneness Apostolics, read the book of John, and not only John, uh, the gospel, the fourth gospel, but read first, second, third John. What some incredible oneness revelations that John had concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. Wow, man, we do have one more verse. We're going to jump into it real quick because I know we're running out of time. We're already at about 55 minutes right oh now. I know. Yeah, we, I, that's me and you. I believe we said this is definitely going to be a shorter we episode. We're going to start going that. like this and just like cut, cut, cut it off. You can't cut that. That's truth flowing, man. And, and, that, and that's what the Word of God says. I want to comment on that so badly, but let's just move, let's move quickly. The last verse we're going to deal with today um, is Acts chapter 7. 
And it's a very popular portion of scripture, the stoning of Stephen. And we're going to start in verses 56, We're going to, excuse me, 55, I think, and then we'll jump to 56. Um, I'm going to set this up again, have you break it down, because I know, I believe you were saying today on the way uh, to this podcast, you, you felt the Lord really dealt with you about something. And I think it's, I think it needs to be shared. I don't think our listeners will mind just a few minutes longer. So without further ado, I'm going to jump into it. Acts chapter 7, verse 55 We'll start 54, the stoning of Stephen. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, verse 55, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Of power, I think it's important to note before I let you, I, I turn you loose. I almost said let you go. I don't go want ahead, you to go. Uh, you know, we find that the Holy Ghost is mentioned, but it's it's Stephen being filled with the Holy Ghost. And as Stephen uh, sees this picture of heaven opened up, I think you find this throughout Scripture very often. We hear, we see Father's Son language, which you've broken down, but it seems like the Holy Spirit got, you know, uh, he, he gets left out if we're he talking about three persons. There. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he might, I don't know. Obviously, we don't, and not making light of that doctrine, no. but he's just, yeah. uh, he's not there, which I think, I think that's kind of interesting. We don't think that this is talking about two distinct persons because uh, the heavens are being opened up and there's only two there. So, what is going on here when Stephen is stoned and he gets this vision? I just, I, what an incredible picture. I see Stephen just getting railed with stones and he looks up and he just, I don't, I don't know if he felt pain or anything hit him at all. He gets this revelation. And what, it, what did he see? What, what's going on here? You know, number one, 100%, I do not believe what he's seen is two distinct individuals sitting side by side. But they're using, as the Old Testament does so many, so many times. Yes is metaphoric or descriptive language to explain a certain attribute of God. Yeah. Uh, especially because it's the right hand. Why not the left? What's yeah. the difference? It, obviously, there's a symbol here that we have to recognize. And so ask yourself the question, is this a literal description or is this metaphorical? Uh, throughout Scripture, the word used is descriptive language describing things relatable to man. So you got... We can't understand God to who he really is without him dumbing it down for us or making it relatable to us. He speaks in a way that we can understand. Absolutely. You know, that's why, and I'm not, I'm not going off a trail. I know we've got short time, but that's why Jesus spoke in parables. He that's said, right. if you don't understand the parables, you're not going to understand the spiritual things. It's the same thing. That's the purpose of descriptive language. If you don't understand the physical description, you're not going to understand the spiritual whatsoever. Right. So that's, the, that's why God does that. And so let's look at the right hand just in a couple verses. The right hand of God throughout Scripture, this is emphatic is that it represents the power and the and or the authority of God. It can even represent his blessing or his curse, depending on how he uses it. Because many times the right hand refers to God's power at work. Right. So it's God's power at work. This is what Psalms said. I'm only bringing up these two scriptures because of time. Uh, Thou hast a mighty arm. Strong is thy hand. And watch. And high is thy right hand. Mm-hmm. In Psalms 118.16, it says, The right hand of the Lord is 
the right hand of the Lord doeth violently. And so there's so many scriptures, even in Isaiah, refers to God, your hand, your right hand is mighty and powerful. And so there's multiple, multiple scriptures that are referring to the right hand of God. Now, is that saying God's flexing and everybody can see his right arm and see how strong? No, it's referring to the power and the authority of the Lord at work. And so what does it mean when Christ is sitting at the right hand of God? It means what Christ said it meant. In Mark fourteen sixty two, That's right. He gave us the description of what it meant. He said, and Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand, not of God, of power. Of power. He's sitting at a position of power and authority and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so with what the scripture is referring to, what Stephen saw, Stephen saw Jesus Christ after his ascension in a glorified state, sitting in, in the position of, of power and authority. Now, you said, you know, I, that the Lord kind of showed me something. Yes. And it really did. It's I was driving down the road one day, and the Lord just kind of, he kind of got me. Um, just to finish in regards to the power and authority like we said before, Jesus is the expressed image of God's essence. He's the, he's the image of the invisible God. He is seeing the expressed image of God's power at that period of time. That's why Jesus said, said I have been given all power and authority has mm-hmm. been given unto me. And he really meant that when he said that. So Stephen seen that he was telling the truth. Mm-hmm. But let's get, now this is what I feel in my spirit of really what Steve, this is all about. In the, in the book of Acts, there were kind of a couple examples that were not standard. Like Ananias and Survira, when they lied against the Holy Ghost and, and they were killed, their lives were taken. Um, that is not a normal thing. And, well, what do you mean by that? There's plenty of us that have done not necessarily the same but close to the same thing. And if not worse in our minds. Yes. Yeah. And and we have sinned against yeah. God, but he never he never he never took our lives. I right. believe that they were an example that there is death to sin even when you're a born again believer. Now that's my opinion and you can have an other opinion and and that's fine. But this is what I believe. Stephen think about this. Stephen was the first death First martyr. He was the first martyr of the born-again believers that ever took place. Right. This, ever is, post, place. this is post-Acts 2.38. Um, I think it's... Yep, it's this post, is Acts 7, yep. Acts chapter 7. Mm-hmm. This is after they've received the gift of the Holy <clears throat> Ghost. Yep. Yes. So after they've received the gift of the Holy Ghost, and he's going out in the synagogues and he's preaching, we're at, we're at the final moment here. He gets pulled out and he's about to be stoned. When you think about... Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God. Can we just break that down for a second? And I want to slow down right here. In Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people. This scripture is referring to the prophecy of Christ and him as the scepter of God. Esther is a is one of those books that that talks about a Jewish woman that got chosen for such a time to save her people. 
And she had to go before the king. And the thing about going before the king, if you went before the king uninvited, you could get killed Hmm. if he didn't put his hand on the scepter. But if he put his hand on the scepter and he pointed it towards you, what that was a symbol of was a sign of acceptance that you can come into my presence. Hmm. Now, I know some of you out there are starting to catch on what we're talking about. And this is what Esther 5.2 says, just to kind of give a description. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. Now, this is a beautiful description of God in the church. As he found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter, and that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Christ, this is what I believe is referring, not necessarily 100%, but Christ is the scepter of acceptance. So when Stephen is the first death, and he is the example unto us of what's going to take place, this is what happens. God said, I'm going to give an example for all my, for all those fellow martyrs that might take place, and I'm going to let Stephen see what they're all going to see when they're going to die. And what I believe is when Stephen looked up, is that he seen Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand. And when Jesus said, no man can come unto the Father except by me, he meant it. And when Stephen looked up and seen Jesus, what he really seen was, you can come into my presence. You what, can come into my presence. What an incredible image. And regardless of um, the different ideas and views you could have about that verse, it's safe to say... <clears throat> Uh, the Bible is not teaching a, a distinction of persons there. Absolutely. It's definitely the imagery and metaphorical <clears throat> language of the power um, that Jesus Christ operated under while he was on earth, and Stephen got that revelation. Um, he obviously knew that, but it was a vision revealed unto him. He got a glimpse of it, um, what was about to occur for himself. Beautiful thing. We've had an incredible time. We're going to try and I'm going to try and skip the preliminaries as far as saying goodbye we thank you so much for tuning in once again we've hoped you've enjoyed this we've hoped you've been blessed by this what an incredible time we've had we've had so much fun specifically with this oneness of god series we're going to go ahead and leave you in the dark a little bit about what we're going to be talking about next week we are going to continue to move on with the series why i believe um but you're going to have to tune in again to see where we go next we have a couple different avenues we can take i think we got a good idea but we're going to go ahead and uh, leave a cliffhanger out there, come back and see what we're going to go do next after we have this great understanding of the Godhead, how the God of the Bible reveals himself in two testaments. That is an incredible book, by the way, uh, The God of Two Testaments. If you don't have that, pick that up. Just a quick shameless plug for that book. Bro, anything else before we take off? I hope everybody has a good night. All right. Well, we love you guys. God bless. Once again, we'd like to thank you so much for tuning in to the Christian Apostolic Center podcast. We hope you've thoroughly enjoyed these last three episodes, particularly dealing with the oneness of God. And as we have said at the end of each episode and alluding during the recordings, we're going to go ahead and give you some resources here. I'm going to do my best not to talk about each one individually at a 
extended depth because we've already taken up a good amount of your time. We thank you so much for that. If you haven't, please go over, download the podcast, subscribe to it, like it, all those good things. It helps us further the gospel. First and foremost, I want to jump in. The Great I Am's of Jesus by Earl R. Allen. I use this book a lot dealing with the I Am statements of Jesus and what Jesus claimed about himself. This is a great book, not written by a oneness guy. Some of these books are not written by oneness people, which is another reason to pick them up. They're a great resource when they confirm of the doctrine of oneness when they don't particularly hold that view themselves. Some great books. This book right here, The Development of the Trinity by Glenn Davidson. This is an incredible book talking about how the Trinity was developed over time. You need to have this resource. Another one by David K. Bernard. This is a handbook of basic doctrines. There's more than just oneness verses in here, but he gives a lot of oneness scriptures for a lot of different things. I'll just leave it at that. He has a bunch of scriptures in there. That's pretty much what that book is. Uh, another book similar to The Development of the Trinity by Davidson. This is Ancient Champions of Oneness by William B. Chalfant. This is an incredible resource. Need to pick that book up. Uh, is Jesus in the Godhead or is the Godhead in Jesus by Gordon McGee? This is a little pamphlet. I don't think this book is but maybe 35, 40 pages. What an incredible action-packed, full of resources. You need to get this book. It has scriptures, verses, great pickup. Same thing with Essential Doctrines of the Bible by David K. Bernard. Another little pamphlet. Can't be but 45 pages. Uh, I have this book underlined, highlighted, all kinds of things. Uh, another oneness guy proclaiming the oneness of God. Brother David K. Bernard, again, he has a lot of great books. Uh, He's exhaustive on this topic. Oneness and the Trinity, again, similar to William B. Shelfont and Davidson, talking about the development of the Trinity. All three of these books use similar resources. So if you're only able to pick up maybe one of the three, either The Development of the Trinity by Glenn Davidson or Ancient Champions of Oneness by William B. Shelfont or this one, Oneness and Trinity by David K. Bernard, all three of these books have very similar uh, similar chapters in particular so if you can only pick up one of those three that's okay Uh, our god is one by talmage french what an incredible book the story of the oneness pentecostals brother french does an incredible job breaking these things down i mentioned one of the last of the two resources um by i believe it was let me make sure i give the right one the god of two testaments this is by brent grave excuse me robert brent graves this book's a little bit harder to get um as far as online at least i have found but you can pick it up that's a great resource and last but not least by david s norris um i am a oneness pentecostal um theology explained Brother Norris, I know, uh, is one of the ancient champions of oneness, to quote a book that we had earlier. He has been a great voice in the Oneness Pentecostal movement concerning the theology of the Oneness Pentecostals. And I know this book comes highly recommended, not only by many people in our movement, but also by Pastor Brian Spinner of CEC. So pick up that book if you can. Uh, There are more resources, believe it or not, but these are just some of the ones we wanted to give to you that we have used. We hope you're able to pick them up, and we hope you continue to tune in to the podcast here at Christian Apostolic Center. We have a lot in store continuing with the series Why I Believe. So stay tuned. Listen in. God bless. Thank you.